0: Please turn with me in your copy of the scriptures or you can look along in the worship bulletin to 2 Timothy chapter 1 verse 13 and I'll read to verse 3 of chapter 2. The sermon will give close attention to verse 13 of chapter 2 but of chapter 1 but we'll read the whole passage. Hear the word of God. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. You are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Fidilus and Hermogenes. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus. For he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you well know all the service he rendered at Ephesus. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses... And trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Our Father and our God, we ask that through the ministry of your Holy Spirit, you would grant us grace to behold what is here given to point us to the Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. It's a joy to be with you. This morning, and uh, on behalf of Reformed Theological Seminary, I also want to say thank you. We could not do our work uh, without the generosity of your congregation, and our students love worshiping here. It's a refuge from them, from every borough of the city. Well, not yet Staten Island, but we're working on it, but every other borough of the city. uh, It's a real real joy, and and, the church staff treats us uh, like family. This is the place where my family worships. I'm often here, but I'm often elsewhere, uh, speaking in other churches but it's always a particular joy to speak here and the thoughtfulness of the ministry planning here allows me to participate in the life of the church and actually become part of what the congregation is thinking about uh, with pastor jason this series on discipleship and marks of discipleship and this morning we're considering orthodoxy and so the first question is what is it and then second question is why orthodoxy is a term that technically Uh, means right belief. It derives from two Greek terms, orthos meaning straight and doxa meaning praise. So the word itself is actually referring to right worship. And the word orthodoxy doesn't appear in the New Testament specifically, but what you do find in the New Testament is the phrase that is in the passage we're considering this morning, where Paul speaks about a pattern of sound words. Elsewhere he will speak of sound doctrine, or healthy words, or healthy doctrine. There is um, an understanding in the New Testament of a faith passed down, that is, an orthodox or a right faith. And why consider orthodoxy? Well, Jesus unambiguously gives us his purpose. Jesus says that he came that we might have life and have it abundantly. Orthodoxy, or the sound teaching is intended to point us to Jesus Christ. And if we're going to have this abundant life as disciples of Christ, it's good to understand what orthodoxy is or what this sound teaching is. Now, Jesus cannot be reduced down to a set of propositions. We want to be very clear about that. Christian teaching about Jesus, orthodoxy, sets the floor, not the ceiling, of who Jesus is. Now, the floor itself is set in marvelous terms. Uh, For example, when we declare that Jesus is Son of God, crucified, died, buried, ascended into heaven, coming again to judge the living and the dead, this is merely the floor of Jesus' glory. Uh, It is is foundational. Uh, It is not all that Jesus is, nor will we ever comprehend all that he is. We'll be worshiping Father, Son, Jesus, and Holy Spirit into all eternity. But orthodoxy, points us to Jesus, sets the minimum of how we understand him, and therefore is essential that we might have the abundant life that Jesus promises to us. So that's a bit about what orthodoxy is, one reason why look at it, two other reasons to consider orthodoxy this morning. There has at times, and there is currently very much a notion afoot, that orthodoxy doesn't lead to abundant life, but that orthodoxy is actually harmful. I was a bit too hard on Jean-Jacques Rousseau in the first service in my early morning moments, conflating him a bit too much, perhaps with Marx, as I indicated that he rejected all the Christian faith. He actually did not reject all the Christian faith, although some theologians say what he did is tantamount to that. But Rousseau, the great social contract theorist, while retaining a version of Christianity, rejects its central tenets of the Orthodox Christian faith, especially the notion that we are inherently sinful. He instead said that We do bad things, not because of what's within our hearts, but because of social pressures and societal structures. He rejects orthodoxy and actually sees anything that is steering you to a lesser view of yourself than as essentially good as harmful. That may have resonance with you this morning. That may be a view that you have of Christian orthodoxy. It may be a view that you have encountered, probably is, that orthodoxy is harmful but we look at orthodoxy to see that it is actually not harmful, but a pathway to the abundant life. It is a pathway to blessing because it is a pathway to Jesus. Another reason to consider orthodoxy is um, what the late 19th, early 20th century theologian Hermit Bavink pointed out. Bavink loved to speak of Uh, individual Christians and of the church, whether it be a local church or an entire segment of the church or even, you know, a whole swath of the church in a particular country as a living organism. And he points out that only Jesus Christ is a perfect living embodiment of the body of Christ. Every other body of Christ, we as individual believers and as gathered believers, are in some way flawed. And one of the reasons, Bobby points out in his Reformed Ethics, one of the ways that he points out in his Reformed Ethics that we can be flawed is through an unhealthy zeal, uh, to be zealous for one set of teachings or one particular teaching and to neglect the fulsomeness of who Christ is. He goes through each branch of the global church in his day and it's many resonance with our own, and he points out deficiencies in orthodoxy, Um, because of this type of imbalance. Some of you have personal trainers, and as you train with your personal trainer, there'll be one part of your body that you love to exercise. And your trainer will tell you, you just can't do those biceps. You think it looks good, but other people will think you look funny. You need to have balance. I think the Christian life is the same way. We need to have balance balance so we study orthodoxy to lead to health The healthy teaching leads to a healthy organism you as a healthy person us as a healthy congregation the church globally is healthy and again orthodoxy is not all that there is to say about God maybe all that we can comprehend at times but at a minimum it is a foundation that animates our minds and imaginations To discover more, not less, about the truth of God and this world. Orthodoxy doesn't keep us from being all that we can be, but ensures that we would become all that we can be. Very opposite of what is often said. So those are some reasons why, as disciples, we're considering orthodoxy this morning. Now I want to make one general comment about this passage and focus on verse 13 of of chapter 1. The general comment is to note, But here the Apostle Paul is, writing at the end of his life, anticipating his death. He's writing to Timothy, whom he loves, his own personal disciple. Timothy is a young man of about 40 years old, probably. And in this text, the Apostle Paul is emphasizing two things to Timothy. One, that he himself is to remain focused on cultivating and holding to this healthy pattern of teaching that Paul has given him. That he himself is to grow in this understanding of who Jesus is through this teaching. And secondly, that he is to pass this on to others. That he's to grow as a disciple in following Jesus through holding to this healthy or orthodox teaching. And that he is to self-consciously seek out others to pass this truth along to as well. Things that we have been reminded of repeatedly in this particular series now on to consider specifically uh, in in more detail verse 13 of chapter 1 and the first thing we want to see here is the importance of pattern now pattern of words this is an important concept Um, it's used to describe the healthy teaching of the Christian faith and it's important that you see uh, Christian truth in relation to the whole in relation to the pattern I was at a theology conference a couple of weeks ago, when we were considering together the ill-formed religious and political thinking that can emerge when you take a verse or two of Holy Scripture, pull them out from the biblical pattern, and put them into some other pattern of emphasis. I have a humorous illustration of this. I remember when I was in the 8th grade, we had elective courses that lasted for one semester, and I was very interested in the second term of my eighth grade semester in taking home economics, believe it or not. And I was interested in doing this because I wanted to sew. My grandmother and mother sewed, and I knew that in home economics, one of the projects was to make a pair of Bermuda shorts. And so a lot of us took that class because we wanted to make these shorts and proudly wear them around school. Um, You know, it could have gone either way, incredibly nerdy thing to do, but for whatever reason it worked in our favor, and it was cool at my school to wear the Bermuda shorts that you made yourself in home economics. I wish I still had them. I think I do have a picture perhaps I can share me in those shorts, and a, when I had hair, an interesting haircut as well. what um, Stranger Things, it was that time um, in the 80s, 90s. So in that class, I learned to sew. Now, my mother and grandmother sewed, and they had patterns everywhere. You, you can still buy these on Amazon. I checked last night, uh, these little packets and you know, you have light paper, kind of almost like tracing paper. You, you pull the patterns out, you spread them all over the table, and then you cut pieces of cloth and pin them to the patterns, and then you sew. And, and they can become very elaborate, you know? Uh, we were doing, you know, low-level Bermuda shorts, uh, but prom dresses, tuxedos, you know, very elaborate patterns. And my mother and grandmother did this mostly for hobby and creative outlet. However, in those days, uh, which I don't think is, is the case now. You, you could save a little bit of money, maybe, as well, making your own clothes. That's not so anymore, as far as I know, unless it's changed. Um, <clears throat> but they had the patterns there. And as a child, sometimes I would be allowed to cut the cloth for the pattern and maybe even pin it onto the pattern um, and then uh, watch them sew it. And so I did that myself. and did wear my shorts around with great pride. Uh, the second semester of eighth grade, and all into the summer, until I outgrew them. So, um, but imagine if, for my Bermuda shorts, I had taken uh, a a piece of cloth that was intended for another pattern, hey, a prom dress, or a suit, and put it into the Bermuda shorts instead. Well, it wouldn't have looked good. I mean, it may have looked like something they wear to the Met Gala, but to, to an eighth grader, it wouldn't have looked good, right? It wouldn't have looked appropriate to do that. And orthodoxy can sometimes appear restrictive and harmful, not because orthodoxy itself is, but because some single proposition has been taken as a substitute for orthodoxy. Some truth has been lifted outside the context of all of Scripture or outside of relation to Jesus and his mission for the world, and the result becomes an unbalanced, ugly portrait of faith or sometimes even an idolatrous substitute for Jesus himself. Now, one great sin of the West and the Western church has been to seek cover under a distortion of orthodoxy for mercantilism and colonialism and the slavery that ensued from it, where verses like, Submit to governing authorities or slaves obey your masters were twisted to justify oppression, as if the whole point of Jesus was to sustain a social order of white Europeans rather than to liberate all humanity from bondage. As if the whole point was to benefit an elite class of white males, rather than to bless all people as image bearers of God. In fact, the teaching of Scripture is that all government is fallen, weak, transitory, temporary, and will be succeeded by a kingdom established by Jesus on the earth, after he has judged every wicked deed, set all things right, and brought heaven down to earth forever. We can see the difference in emphasis And there are other distortions of orthodoxy that can arise. Certainly in our own cultural moment now, we must embrace the fullness of Christian orthodoxy to ensure that love of unborn persons does not displace love of women with unplanned pregnancies, whether intended or unintended, and pursue that which is good for both who fully bear the image of God and we're called to fully love and care for. But we can see how ignoring the pattern can lead to a distortion. Now Paul tells Timothy to hold to or follow this pattern of sound words or healthy words. And he says they're his words, but Paul knows that he is not standing alone here. He understands, and we can see in the rest of his teaching, that he is part of a foundational apostolic witness to whom Jesus promised a special instruction of the Holy Spirit that would guide the rest of the church into all truth. It is the apostles who give not only this inspired scripture, but they also give the form of it. They're carried along by the Holy Spirit in this task. They not only give sentences, but they place them in right relation. And the task of the theologian or the Christian, every Christian is a theologian after all, is to see the pattern, not just the word or the verse a pattern that centers on Christ himself and his mission for the world and the glory of God. And that pattern is discovered through studying the scriptures. Now, the church's hallmark artifact of orthodoxy is the Apostles' Creed. We say it every Sunday here. It's a statement of faith that emerges from the baptismal formula which Jesus gave to his disciples as part of his commission to them, the last words of the gospel of Matthew, where he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations or all peoples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age." Well, there you see the basic outline of the Apostles' Creed, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. There are other creedal statements within the New Testament scriptures themselves that form this pattern of sound words. But the the Apostles' Creed was understood by the early church to be reflective of the teaching of the apostles, um, was embraced early on. And um, certainly in the West is the predominant creed, and nothing in the Apostles' Creed is contrary to the Church of the East either. And so it's very appropriate, Christians all around the world uh, say the Apostles' Creed as a celebration of faith and as a discipleship into healthy teaching or right worship. It may surprise you to know that next time you pick up a 1,500-page volume or multi-volume set of systematic theology, believe it or not, that theologian is probably claiming to explicate the Apostles' Creed along the lines of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So it was with John Calvin in his two-volume work, uh, so it is with many systematic theologies, most of them uh, in the Christian tradition published today. But as we think about this pattern, the possibility of distortion of the Christian faith, I think it leads us to a question this morning. Are we rejecting or resisting Christ? in some way this morning? Are you resisting Christ in some way this morning? If you are, pause and consider whether you're resisting Christ or whether you're actually resisting some poorly cut piece of cloth, poorly cut piece of Bible cloth, cut and sewn into the wrong pattern so that Christ in this dress is now ugly and distorted. Jesus says, I've come that you may have, may have life and have it in abundance. If the Jesus you're beholding is something other than a Jesus who gives you an abundant life, then there's more work to be done. There's more to be discovered. It may be that you're actually resisting something other than Jesus, some distortion of the pattern, some distortion of Christ. As we think about this pattern, Paul describes it as sound words or healthy words, uh, a pattern of healthy words. And I I like the word healthy instead of sound. Um, You know, it is, if you note in your translations, the English Standard Version will have a little um, superscript there that says that healthy is a viable um, alternate translation of this word. And healthy is appropriate because Jesus came to give us life. And things that are healthy are alive. They're growing. Um, And it's important to see that there is a type of logic of healthy orthodoxy in Scripture. Now we see that Jesus himself in Scripture is life. And uh, this logic of this healthy orthodoxy, that orthodoxy actually points us to the Jesus who is life and promises abundant life, is especially on display for us in the Gospel of John. Let's walk through some of these statements from the Gospel of John that show this type of logic of healthy orthodoxy in Scripture, the orthodoxy that points to Jesus. John begins his Gospel in 1.4, by saying this about Jesus. In him was life and the life was the light of men. Jesus says in John 10:10, 10, 10, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. And the next verse Jesus says that this life will cost him his life. I am the good shepherd and the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. In John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. It's the connection between truth and healthy pattern of teaching and life. No one comes to the Father but through me. In John 16, 12 and 13, Jesus says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth as Jesus promises his disciples that he will give them the Holy Spirit that the Holy Spirit will enable them to fill out the pattern of sound teaching for the rest of the church Jesus says in John 20 verse 29 when Thomas comes to him after doubting and believes when he sees the wounds in his hands Jesus says Thomas Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. John 20, 29. Believed what? Believed the pattern of sound words that testify to Jesus. John returns at the very end of his gospel to the theme in which he began. A word about life. John says, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And then Jesus gets the last word in John's gospel, and he says these three words to Peter three times Feed my sheep. Feed them what? Every branch of the Christian church believes this includes, and is especially the sound teaching of the word of God about Jesus Christ. As Jesus promises the Spirit to lead the disciples into all truth, and Peter will be the one who begins the foundational work of proclaiming Christ after Pentecost and is the lead preacher of the New Testament church for some time until Paul comes on the scene. So Jesus promises you abundant life. He promises that he has sent the Spirit to give the apostles teaching about him to lead to, to this abundant life. And he calls upon the church and that charge to Peter to feed the sheep with this truth, nurturing them an abundant life until he returns. You see, there's a great connection between orthodoxy and Jesus in the sense that orthodoxy is intended to point us to Jesus. As we began, orthodoxy and propositions and so forth are never all that Jesus is, but he is certainly never less than how he is described either. And most of the time when there's a challenge to orthodoxy, what we find is in a, in a mistaken view of how we're going to liberate ourselves or find fulfillment of ourselves, we start to imprison Jesus and make him less than he is. Now, Jesus did not come to give you less of a life than you deserve Jesus came to give you an abundant life, more abundant than you can imagine. Now, it is a life with an eternal horizon. This life is not all that there is. And this, too, is part of Christian orthodoxy. Because Jesus' own pattern of life is at the center of orthodoxy itself. And his pattern is a life of death and resurrection. So at this point, you may be feeling death. You may be suffering And Jesus is sure to meet you in that, and I would contend the scriptures say that there can be a joy richer for you in suffering with Jesus. Much, much eternally richer, even in this life, than flourishing supposedly without him. But it is surely true that resurrection day is coming. This suffering will end. There will be a new heaven and a new earth. There will be an abundant life that isn't only rich with spiritual blessings, but is rich with physical abundance as well. We are not disappearing. Heaven is coming down to reign on earth in renewed fashion. You'll all be there. Part of orthodoxy must be to hold to these two realities, that this creation is good, but the next world is better. Because if we forget the next world is better, it won't be worth living for that world. And ultimately, we won't even be able to enjoy this one either. So as we consider that Jesus came to give you abundant life, I ask you to consider this as well. Where are you finding the gap? Where are you finding a gap between, if you were to open your heart and lay it bare, where is there a gap between the life that you think God has for you and what you're actually experiencing? I invite you to open your heart, and instead of hiding from that, lay that out in prayer to Jesus. Seek that out from trusted friends, pastors, elders, whoever in the church, people that you know are on the same jersey. uh, jersey. Yeah, it's the same team. On the same journey. And don't subtly accept that the Christian life It's not abundant because of what you're going through. That's what I'm getting at. But lean into Christ and into his church and let his healthy teaching bring about new health in you as well. Well, The last thing to see here is that the Apostle Paul doesn't just tell Timothy to follow the pattern of sound words or to hold to the pattern of um, healthy words. But if you look closely, he says to do so in the faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus. Now, what's interesting about this phrase? First, in the faith. In the Greek text, there is no definite article, so it's in faith. Now, that's significant because when there's a definite article, the, before faith, sometimes that can mean content of faith, like hold to the faith, like The apostles creed or the teaching itself but when there's no definite article what's indicated here is faith as trust belief and then there's love in faith and in love this is how paul says that timothy is to hold to the pattern of sound words these pattern of sound words that themselves point to jesus but here's the amazing i think vital thing to see Paul says that this faith and this love are themselves found in Christ Jesus. They're found in Christ Jesus. In other words, you cannot hold to orthodoxy unless you let Jesus have hold of you. Orthodoxy is embraced in relationship. The truth about Christianity is never intended to be embraced simply as a set of propositions or ideas disconnected from Jesus. Orthodoxy is not just orthodox teaching Christian teaching is not a stepping stone into relationship with Jesus. No, Paul is saying here that if you want to hold to the pattern of sound teaching, you actually do that in relationship to Jesus. He gives you faith. He gives you his love that in turn you can love him. This all comes from Christ. Christ is the source of the trust and the love that we return back to him. Now this is very mysterious, isn't it? But it's also something that we can relate to. I love this time of year, not only because it's the time of year when I wore my Bermuda shorts that I made myself, but it's also the time of year when I met my wife, Melody. I returned home from college. We met that summer in the courtyard of the church. A year later, I proposed to her in that same courtyard. Now as our relationship unfolded, one of the things that was delightful and has continued to be so is the more I know her uh, the more I know about myself Uh, the more I know her the more I love her because she loves me I discover more about myself in relationship to her and I though I'm kind of thick I hope that you know there's something in it for her too (laughs) but you see there's this blend inseparable blend of the cognitive and the affective the mental the emotional the knowledge and the relationship. You can't separate these two, right? This is something that we can see, not just in romantic or marriage relationships, but in other types of close friendships as well. And Christian believers as a whole are referred to as the bride of Christ. He is the groom. And we fall in love with Christ because Christ brings himself near to us and calls us to be near to himself. There is something relational and powerfully so that precedes or at least accompanies everything that's cognitive. And Paul says that this pattern of orthodoxy is to be held onto with a faith and a love that are themselves to be found in Jesus. Now, why is this so significant? Perhaps, why is it so significant for all of us, but perhaps especially, why is it so f- significant for someone who may be struggling? with an aspect of Christian faith today because it teaches us if we distance ourselves from the person of Christ we also will find it difficult to trust him if we distance ourselves from the person of Christ we also will find it difficult to believe that he loves us or to experience his love see relationship with Jesus is essential to knowing him and to believing things about him that are true that lead to the abundant life. I know Jason would share this with me, and your elders and the ministry leaders here, the, the pattern that we always fear when somebody has bumped up in a rough patch in their life, very understandable, tremendous sufferings come upon us, challenges of faith, all kinds of crises, and we fear in those times that a person may choose to distance themselves from the body of Christ. To distance themselves from the place where we know Christ dwells. Because as that distance begins to build, can be it can be a sin as well, can be falling into some sin, not believing that you're wanted or could be forgiven any longer. You push yourself away from, from seeing Christ, that distance itself is the enemy of faith and love and belief. This was brought home to me in a powerful way through an attorney in Manhattan. Uh, principal uh, partner in a major firm who is both a student of ours and a generous supporter and I remember vividly not long ago having lunch with him and he told me his own personal story it was a story of being brought up in faith departing from faith and returning to faith and um, as he told me the story he said that One moment of reflection, he realized when he had lost his faith, he was reflecting on his life. And the way he said it was, I had enough faith to know why I lost faith. He said, Jay, I quit practicing my faith. I quit reading my Bible. I quit going to church. I quit praying and talking to Christ. I quit asking God to help me. But then finally, I realized that declaring faith was never the same as having faith. And that... I had to practice my faith to be renewed in my faith. I had to draw near to Christ to experience him. And what I found is that he was there all along. He had gone nowhere. Christ has gone nowhere. You may feel that you are far from him. You may feel there are great doubts between you and him. You may fear there are great sins that stand between you, great shameful things that you have done. I don't know what it is, but whatever you think, be sure of this, that Christ is at your side. All you need to do is turn to him. And when my friend turned to Christ, when he began to draw near to Christ again, to behold Christ, to take his doubts to Christ, his failures to Christ, his sufferings to Christ, and when he gave Christ the same patience and time that he gave the other friends of his life, his faith returned, and more vital than ever before. Jesus tells Peter, "Feed my sheep." Soon, the pastor of this church will bring us to Christ, as Christ will commune with us in this meal, and let this be the occasion for all of us to turn afresh to meet the person of Christ to tell him what you are thinking to ask him to show you who you really are so that you can become all that you're meant to be to ask him to tell you what you've done but also to tell you how much he's loved you and proven it in his death and cleansing of your sins turn to Jesus for he is already by you he may seem far but he is at your side turn to him And you will be surprised at what happens. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you dwell with us. And we thank you that you meet us now in this holy meal prepared for this very purpose. That we may behold you in faith and in love. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.